Hi, our names are Neil and Bear, and welcome to the Succulent Podcast, where we talk about absolutely anything and everything. Join us in today's episode as we talk about the revisionism of the English language and all the complications that has. Linguistics is an ever-expanding and fascinating field. It's something we're both very interested in, which is why we chose to do a themed episode on the implication of linguistics today, especially as woke culture seems to be more alive than ever. Like any other movement or philosophy to have existed, language is similarly so a dynamic and fluid concept which changes and is influenced by societal, economic, financial, and emotional changes that society goes through as a whole. And there is such a thing as a semantic shift, which Neil is going to discuss in more detail. But what I will bring light to is this almost worrying trend of words and concepts drastically changing their definitions overnight to suit whatever the new woke agenda seems to be. So I'm just going to quickly come in and say the most recent example of this sort of almost artificial semantic shift that we've seen is... Um, in the speech by Amy Coney Barrett, where she used the the term sexual preference. Now, prior to her saying it, most people did not take offense to that term. But the minute she said it, it apparently became a, quote, outdated and highly offensive term. So much so that Merriam-Webster, the go-to American English language dictionary, overnight added a potentially offensive um disclaimer to the dictionary entry for sexual preference. Now, this is something we'll delve deeper into later on in this podcast, but this is just a recent example um, I wanted to give just as we sort of tread the line of what a woke agenda is. It goes without saying that it appears as though a tenant of this woke agenda is that liberals deny that language has fixed definitions. Maybe they don't say that openly, but that's certainly what their actions imply. It's almost as though words are not attached to actual things from which their meaning is derived, but rather they are made by people and cast into the world. So that is one moral tenant that the woke agenda seems to have. But get this, woke liberals seem to say that for the sake of moral progress, language needs purification and policing in order to be more inclusive and to not potentially offend anyone. There is a handful of truly offensive and unnecessary slurs which shouldn't have a place in anyone's daily language. Words such as faggot, retarded the N-word, which I won't say because I'm white. And those types of things, yes, I agree, they, they do deserve to be kicked out of our language. But once again, as it seems to be a common trend within this new hyper-liberal movement, this language puritanism is simply taken to a new unneeded extreme. To a certain extent, we must have at least an idea of what a concept is and at least a semi-fixed definition, not something that can just radically change from one day to another, such as, as Neil mentioned, sexual preference suddenly being completely offensive. Denying fixed definitions leads us to basically outright relativism, and at the same time, strict language policing leads us to being scared and suspicious of each other, which is really just Orwellian and something completely unnecessary in today's day and age. 
There are many contradictions and potentially dangerous pitfalls of this new woke culture of linguistic puritanism that we simply had to shed light on. I will go into more detail on this in a few minutes time, but as a very quick example, in today's day and age, we understand that a biological male who self-identifies as a woman must be considered a woman, otherwise we are labeled as bigoted, discriminative, and transphobic. Contradicting someone who self-identifies as a woman is wrong. However, on the flip side, many people seem to say that it is impossible to define what a woman is, as this leads to discrimination, transphobia, and all sorts of prejudice which we have pledged to eliminate. So which one is it? How can anyone be a woman, then, if there is actually no set definition for that? These types of paradoxes turn important matters and genuine human rights questions about how to integrate minorities better into our society into a chaotic bloodshed. If we are to sustain a democratic or a socially democratic society in which everyone gets a say, then the left or liberals or whoever is mostly pushing this agenda needs to make a clear distinction between practicable reform and the ever-expanding loophole of woke culture. So on this topic of um, the word woman, but spelt with an X, being, you know, a center of political discussion, I'd like to delve into the linguistics of the word woman, spelt normally, as one would. So... The, the word woman comes from an old English compound of two words, with, which means female or wife, and man, which means person, right? So quite literally, when you put them together, you get female person and, yes, wife person. Now, wife person doesn't make obvious sense, so obviously it's the wife of a man, and that's how man itself became... Um, into two separate meanings of person and, well, a, you know, man. So in Old English, um, a male person had a separate word from man, and that was where. And that's where we get um, the modern English werewolf from, meaning human wolf, you know. So, and you'll see this, the, the remnants of man being a gender-neutral term in other Germanic languages, and English is part of the Germanic languages, and those include Dutch, German, Swedish, Norwegian, um, Flemish, those languages, where, you know, in German you have mensch, which means person, human. Um, man is very frequently used as a neuter term in German. So, you'll see the remnants of this sort of gender-neutral meaning of man. And really, if we do want to nitpick a sexist angle to the word woman, right, it's not the man bit, because etymologically that makes no sense. That's incorrect to say that that's the sexist bit. Really, we probably should be taking offense to the work part of it, the W-O bit, because that comes from um, whiff, which used to mean wife, you know, no one seems to be spelling woman as W-X-M-A-N. Some, for some reason, we saw man in the word and are like, oh, we don't want man, let's make the A and X. Like, here's the thing, right? Linguistics accepts change in languages, but there needs to be some sort of basis to the change you're making. You can't look at a word, make up your own theories about that word. 
and then you know start changing stuff as you'd like the the reason why linguistics is an academic subject is because there are theories that are behind it and to some extent we need to appreciate those theories expanding on this example of the alternative spelling of women I have noticed two separate narratives people use to justify this, but they don't have a lot of overlap. The first narrative is that you don't want the word man in woman. However, because a lot of people claim that women with an X would still be pronounced like women, I don't see the point of adding a different letter if the pronunciation is still the same. Furthermore, the second narrative is that women with an X is more inclusive and it includes transgender and non-binary people who have previously been marginalized. But if trans women are women, then surely you wouldn't need a new spelling to highlight this. If anything, it just treats trans women as though they're a special subcategory of women or not equal to a cisgendered woman, which I believe is actually against the agenda of activists today. Creating 10, 20, 50 new labels for everyone isn't actually inclusivity. Rather, simply expanding the one label you already have to include everyone is truly what inclusivity means. So, to conclude, really, in order to accept trans women as women, which is something we should be doing, there is no need to create an alternative spelling. We can just use the one which we have already had for centuries on end. Seeing the word men being spelt with an X. Why do we not need to include the same tenant of inclusivity in the male world? I think it's actually because men are automatically seen as the default human, whether or not woke people want to admit it. So it's always women who must accept the imposition of new rules, such as women with an X. Overall, it is a very poor fix-all term, and it doesn't seem to be doing the job that it said it would. In fact, at an exhibition in Welcome Collection in London in 2018, the organizers of an event received a lot of backlash for using women spelt with an X, even prompting an apology over Twitter. Now what I'm trying to say is, if people genuinely want to spell women with an X, by all means go ahead, there is no point in stopping you. But seeing women with an X, seeing this alternative spelling as the only acceptable form, is just a very nasty example of linguistic idealism. It's the situation in which intellectual wokeism stipulates that equality can only be achieved through linguistic purification. But what this really does is it only encourages the morally righteous to look for offense rather than actually clearing our language of harmful, prejudiced speech. Another quick example I'll mention, which is really quite counterintuitive wokeism is the addition of an X to the word Latin or Latino or Latina to get Latinx. I think this is a very funny example because in Spanish phonology, you can't actually pronounce an X at the end of a word. Furthermore, the addition of a gender neutral X is a very anglicized thing to do and it completely ignores the gendered nature of the Spanish language. How is that fair? How is imposing an inherently Anglo-Saxon myth and creation onto a Romance language a good thing? What if there is someone who speaks Spanish as their mother tongue, but doesn't understand English? How are they expected to keep up with all this new wokeology? Funnily enough, a survey revealed that only a quarter of Hispanics and Latinos have heard the term being used, and of that percentage, only 3% actually like the term and use it. 
Apart from the fact that people who are Latino or Latina should be the ones deciding how they want to present their language, if we want to be completely radical, the real issue is with the word Latin itself. It is deeply rooted in colonialism, and it was championed by the French who first invaded South America. So if you want non-gender terminology, it is absolutely hypocritical and counterintuitive to cling on to European languages as the basis of your identity. Rather, you should choose an alternative in the actual indigenous language of these people. So that's a very good point on how sort of there's been an imposition of European languages in North America and South America due to um, colonialism. So on the topic of European languages, right, something that gets brought up quite a lot, not for English because it lacks grammatical gender, but for languages like French, Spanish, German, all of which have this sort of grammatical gender inherent to them. It's that it's apparently in some weird way sexist. And here's the thing, right? Grammatical gender has quite literally nothing to do with human gender. The The word gender, right, in English, it comes from French uh, genre, which means simply type in French, which is why if you see any French government document, you'll never see them asking you for your genre. They'll always ask you for your sex. Um, yes, the word is the same in French. So, and here's the thing, right? The meaning of genre, as in type, is used in English as well when we say genre of music, pop, jazz, all of them, you know, you call them a genre of music. There we use genre as type. So it's something called, it's basically that English borrowed that word twice from French, but just changed it the first time around to make it gender. And when in linguistics you talk about gender, you use its meaning as type, right? In French, a chair is la chaise, and la is the feminine pronoun, but it does not mean the chair has feminine properties, because, you know, that makes no sense. It's simply a way of classifying nouns, and it arose that way because it's easy to classify. And English had gender, it just lost it. Um, another thing is... And if you've ever studied a Romance language like French or Spanish, you'll, uh, you might have noticed that somehow, you know, when there's a group of seven girls, you'll use the female plural pronoun in French, that'll be elle. If there's a group of seven guys, you'll use the masculine plural pronoun, which in French is il. But if there's seven guys and one girl... You won't use L, you'll use il, and same thing if there's seven girls and one guy, you'll still use il. And that is not because whoever, you know, in l'Académie Française sounds like, let's make our language sexist and let's uphold the patriarchy. That's not what happened. All that happened was as French evolved from Latin, it collapsed Latin's neuter gender and masculine gender into one and that's not something that's unique to the French language it happened in Croatian as well yeah actually in Croatian there is a third grammatical gender called the neutral gender but the same 
plural pronoun that is used for masculine objects is also used if there's a combination of masculine or feminine, masculine or neutral, or masculine, feminine, and neutral objects, because the masculine plural form is simply the default. Again, not because it's upholding the patriarchy, it's just the way the language has evolved. So this brings me back to the original point I made, right? That in linguistics, you need to appreciate it as an academic field. And again, that it has theories that, you know, have some basis to them. So just don't go around screaming patriarchy at something that might look like, you know, it discriminates a language. Yes, humans make a language but it's a joint effort it's it's not it's not natural for a language to be inherently discriminatory so much the same way that the structure history and evolution of languages is a very complex field that requires more than just being offended at to understand the actual act of communication and speaking is in itself a very nuanced thing Communication isn't just limited by the things that we say, so the words that physically come out of our mouth. Communication also includes nuance, like body language, tone, context, and even our own understanding, or lack thereof, of whatever is being discussed. All of these things must be taken into account. Otherwise, we delve into this other neoliberal creation of cancel culture, in which if you accidentally use a racist slur or word unknowingly, you are instantly and objectively speaking a racist and a terrible person. In that case, intention and tone suddenly don't matter, it's just the word itself. Not only does this codified and digital way of communication make it easier for people to get canceled even if their intentions weren't bad, it also makes it a lot easier for virtue signaling to pass through. As long as people say the right words in the right order the way in which people want to hear them, you can have completely polar opposite intents and maybe even deliver those words sarcastically. But if the agenda is there, if the narrative is followed, you are suddenly a good person, and simply because you use the right words, you are excused from pretty much any type of misdemeanor. I won't go into too much detail as to why this is completely unsustainable, as episode one kind of covers this already, but I will end this particular example with a quote from Orwell's 1984. A heretical thought should be literally unthinkable, at least so far as thought is dependent on words. So take that as you will. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that language does not exist in isolation, right? When we use it, there's a hell lot of nuance that goes into using it. So I'll give you a small example of the word faggot. Now, in America, it's a highly offensive term for homosexual um, individuals. But in the UK, yes, we import American culture in the UK, and which is why some people take offense to that. But in the UK, a faggot is a type of meatball. And you can't really fault people for, you know, <laughs> using that word in the UK. Um, it's diminutive. Fag, which is also offensive in America, is, um, is slang for cigarettes in England. So context is just, it's so important whilst, you know, deriving meaning from language. Because 
unless humans give context to a language, a language is just a bunch of sounds you make. Diversity in populations effectively gives rise to new ways of these sounds and contexts being developed through language and new ways of speaking effectively. And that is how dialects are formed. Specifically, we will be focusing on of, which stands for African-American Vernacular English, or which is colloquially known as black talk. It includes words such as ratchet, bay, deadass, lit, real tade, fierce, finna, and thirsty, and things like rap, pop culture, and just easy access of information through the internet have made of very popular, not just among the African-American community, but basically anyone who is an English-speaking person. So something about of that Bay and I have noticed, especially after the BLM protests this summer, is this notion that only black people can use of. And that's an example of linguistic gatekeeping. And I should say it's heavily shunned. Now, Black English speakers are present everywhere, especially in America and the UK, right? So it's but natural that maybe standard British English will have contact with of and standard American English will have contact with of. And historically, that's how languages have evolved with constant contact with other languages. It's why English has so many French words we use today. Information, that's a French word. Education, that's a French word as well. You know, it, linguistic gatekeeping has been attempted before and it has always failed simply because it's not in the natural evolutionary course of a language to absolutely be devoid of any sort of foreign influence. So the claim that Maybe a white person or an Indian person using of as somehow cultural appropriation. It's quite misguided. Look, and I'm not saying use of to ridicule of, right? That's that's not cool. But at the same time, if someone is just naturally using words that, you know, came into of, it, they're just using a language and you really can't fault someone for using English as they know it. Because if we do go down that path, everybody who speaks English today, to some degree, has been appropriating French and Latin since 1066 when the Normans conquered England. And if that sounds ridiculous to you, that's because it is. And that's especially why this whole idea of this, not the idea of cultural appropriation, but this ballooned up idea of woke cultural appropriation is such a slippery slope. Effectively, the end result of this really awkward fusion of moral fervor that we must change the world for the better with ethical nihilism in which morality is suddenly a social construct and we can't judge others based on our perceived notions of what is moral and what isn't, we have slipped into purity spirals. A purity spiral is, to put it quite bluntly, useless. It is just a competitive pursuit of moral ideas for their own sake without any practical applicability. There is no upper limit, no agreed interpretation, the means justify the means, and it is an incredibly slippery slope which, even though claims to be tolerant and inclusive, is anything but inclusive when it becomes questioned. For example, right? If our only goal is to smash binaries when dealing with gender and sexuality, 
we don't actually have a particular idea of what we want to reduce them to. So how do we know when to stop? What is inclusive enough? What is neutral and accepting enough? Yeah, I agree, we can slice them into smaller subsections, but it quickly becomes very obvious that these subsections have no essence of their own. So then they're split into more and more sub-subsections. What exactly are we hoping to achieve? And what is the goal of this linguistic puritanism which divides people and makes them more skeptical and bitter of each other than it does to unite them? A final question that I have for the woke people for the progressives, is how can you claim that language is a private enterprise used to define your own reality and used to self-identify as anything you wish, while you throw words around like racist, misogynist, and transphobe to identify someone else and to taint your opponents? What I don't think you understand is that words like racist, transphobic, and homophobic, and of all those of those sort, are incredibly heavy and they carry very bad and negative connotations which should make you feel shivers down your spine. But every time you use them simply to taunt someone else who doesn't agree with you, you're making people desensitized to what is actually a very strong and serious word and which must be taken a lot more seriously than it is today. So we mentioned this idea of semantic shift in the beginning of um, this episode. So I'd like to talk a bit on that. So The two basic tenets of linguistics as an academic field are prescriptivism and descriptivism. Now, what what does that mean? Now, prescriptivism is essentially how a language is taught to you. You know, you're told these are the rules of the English language. These are the rules of the French language, yada, yada, yada. Whereas descriptivism is essentially noting how that language evolves in micro-communities and over larger scales of time. You know, Old English for us is incomprehensible, but we classify it as English because of certain linguistic characteristics that it has. So that's essentially what descriptivism and prescriptivism are. Now, both are needed. One cannot, you know, just hold on to one tenet. Um, Because whereas descriptivism goes, you know, with the flow of the language, prescriptivism is what keeps it essentially in check. It what allows a language not to have 72 different forms, you know, so that the language itself is incomprehensible. That's when we see two separate languages evolve from one language. And, you know, preserving languages has been done for various reasons of... um, you know, in history. So where does semantic shift come into this? Now, words change meaning. You know, the N-word, how 50 years ago, probably wasn't as offensive as it is today. Its context of usage has changed. That's semantic shift. Um, Another example is uh, probably the word woman, you know. The whiff part from where the W-O and woman comes from today didn't mean exactly the same thing it does today. So semantic shift is not something that we need to stop, but what needs to be stopped is artificially pushing words to mean something else. We use they as a singular pronoun as well as a plural pronoun in English today, but that's not because, you know, someone in 2010 woke up and was like, hey, that actually works. No, 
It was historically used in the English language as the pronoun for unknown gender, and it has been adapted for non-binary usage today. That's good, you know, it's well-attested semantic shifts, but using made-up pronouns like zee, zim, zay, I mean, no one's going to use them because, to put it quite simply, it's not natural for people to use them. And sure, you can use them because it's your right to use your native language or your, you know, whichever language you're fluent in as you wish, that's fine. But to then say that someone is, you know, homophobic or whatever phobic you'd like to call them, you don't really have much standing there because that's not semantic shift, that's just artificially making up words in a language. And just alluding to my previous point, again, a semantic shift is a very long and almost subtle process because it takes such a long time. And yeah, it's necessary. Words will eventually change meaning. But to re reiterate, semantic shifts occur when words still have some sort of a fixed definition or when at least part of the definition is still fixed. It's not when a group of far left activists suddenly decides, oh my goodness, Let's completely change the meaning of this word and expect everyone to jump on board. No, that is unnatural, and that is actually what we are criticizing. And a final note on semantic shift, right? Nobody accepts a new or a novel definition of a word in the first go. You know, we see racism as um, a target of semantic shift where today... You, you'll um, hear this notion that black people can't be racist towards white people or Asian people or whatever. We both believe that they can be. Anybody can be racist towards anybody of a different or the same race, right? That's a whole nother debate, which I'm sure we'll do an episode on. But coming back to the linguistics bit of it, right? Some people are completely right to believe that racism has its very basic definition of prejudice against a race, not one particular race, any race, but you're also fine in defining it as prejudice against a race maybe having more societal clout in a country or, you know, along those lines. That's that's fine, but you cannot expect semantic shift not to have any sort of, um, you know, pressure against it. And that's the beauty of linguistics, that it's always dynamic it's beautifully political and apolitical at the same time, and that's why we love to do this episode. And look, this podcast is just as much of an exploration for us as it is for you as we speak about new concepts and topics we learn about them. And that's why we brought this whole example of what we believe racism to be, not because we have any sort of moral high ground on how to define words, but really because I can genuinely vouch for the fact that when I was in elementary school, racism was simply defined as prejudice from any race to any other race, simply on the basis of skin color and appearance. And you know what? Perhaps there is a necessary element to add the whole power dynamic aspect to it, which essentially prevents 
racism towards white people to occur. But the fact is, for both of us, this is a very new concept. It might be very new for some of you who are tuning into this episode. So if it does take time for people to accept this definition, just remember a semantic shift never happened overnight. Thank you for tuning in. That's all from us for this episode. And we hope to see you very soon. Goodbye. Bye.